Hey, if you've been listening over the last couple months, you've heard all about the GameTime app and how it can save you some serious cash on last-minute tickets to sports, concerts, all types of shows. And really, like this is a, such a great time of year to get together with friends and family and go check out a game or a concert because people actually have the time to do it. And the GameTime app is such an easy way with their two-tap checkout to go ahead and find a great price on a great event near you. There's so much selection when you check it out. Well, now GameTime is hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what you do. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store. Click on the My Tickets section of the app. Create an account. Then under the Billing section, enter the redemption code, The Athletic. Once again, that's The Athletic, all one word. For $10 off your first purchase. And I don't know, like depending on what you're doing, $10 off is a good chunk of the ticket. That's free money. Credit is only available to the first 1,000 people who redeem the code, and it expires at the end of the year. That's December 31st, 2019. So make moves quick and score those last-minute tickets. Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig, and welcome to the final episode of the Full 60 of 2019. Uh, and I want to start first and foremost with a huge thank you because this was the most successful year of this podcast on a lot of levels. One, it was the year that we migrated fully and completely under the umbrella of The Athletic, which was an important development for this podcast, um, mainly because what started out as a passion project and something I tried to squeeze in on my free time became something much more structured. It became an every Thursday morning uh, a podcast was arriving to you um, because I had the assistance of producer Tyler Hunt, and it also meant better guests. We Tyler's hard work and effort behind the scenes lined up an incredible line of guests this year: Scotty Bowman and Joel Quenville and Cami Granado, and just guest after guest. Ted Leonsis. We had really high end guests and a, a lot of time to talk with them. And and um, that was that was great. And and mostly, I just want to thank everybody who listened because it was it was awesome. We're we're not getting these these high end guests, these interesting people, the people that I'm dying to talk to, um, without having an audience, without being able to say, "Hey, look, there's we this, this gets a lot of listens. This is this is worth your time to to stretch out and have a conversation." So thank you to everybody. And so every year we do our best of. I like saying every year, like this podcast has been around for a decade. It is an annual tradition at the Full 60 to do a best of, a best of for the last podcast of the year. And we're going to, there was a period of time where this podcast was only behind the athletics paywall as we were kind of experimenting with format and how we wanted to do it. And so there was a, a group of pretty prominent guests who didn't get the, I would say, the exposure outside on iTunes and Spotify that the most recent episodes of the Full 60 has received. So, in putting together this best of, we definitely are leaning into those guests that maybe, maybe you missed some of these because it was you know you were confused in where to find the podcast or whatever. And it's a great it's a great list. Um, this is Joel Quenville, Martin Brodeur, Pat Brisson, Bruce Boudreau, Carrie Fraser, Connor Carrick. There was some really fun, fascinating conversations. And so, with the assistance of Tyler Hunt, we've highlighted a few of our favorite moments. These are, I would say, like. Four to six minute clips, uh, maybe you know a great story or an anecdote that we wanted to relive again in case you missed it, um, and and close out the year on a bang. So here it is. We're going to lead things off with Carrie Fraser, of course, the longtime referee, and a, a story that Carrie or a, a conversation we had about the transparency and the interaction between officials, players fans so let's lead it off with carrie so like i i think you know the, the names that that's an interesting thing like the the communication between players that relationship building I, I think transparency would be good like what else 
are there steps to to get it better? Because I, I do think you don't want it to be the story of the playoffs, and it's not necessarily. But it, from your perspective, is there areas or, or something the steps the league could do to kind of up the quality? Yeah, well, let's let's revisit your question about uh, accessibility uh, post game yeah. for interviews. Um, I always wanted to uh, be available for the media. Um, and the reason for that is if I told a series supervisor and he asked me a question on a play and then he went out to deliver the message, the message was always, not always, but most often, it wasn't as I had delivered it. So well, it becomes telephone, a game of telephone or whatever at that point, right? Like, well, absolutely. And, you know, you tell a story to one guy and he goes out and tries to tell the same story, but it's always going to be changed. And uh, some um, some of our officials would not really be uh, capable of conducting an interview. Uh, they would get tripped up. I always found that, you know, I had a, a little bit of a uh, skill set of controlling an interview if there was if there was a question that i didn't like i wouldn't say no comment but i would steer the the, the question and, and my answer to a point where i wanted it right. uh, i wouldn't get tripped up i wouldn't get get trapped so i can understand from the league's perspective especially you know gary mahar is a great guy he's he's in charge of uh, the uh, media relations and and uh, any press releases and that sort of thing. And they feel when there's been a, a, a mess up um, that they have to control it. That, you know, they have to spin it. They have to give them an answer, the media. Right. And I'm, I prefer just to be straight at you guys. I missed it. And this is why, and you know, make it, understandable from a human perspective you know when i retired and i went with tsn and, and we created uh that come on ref segment yeah it went viral i mean right off the bat um you know not just jumping on uh with james duffy uh in intermission if there was a, a controversial call uh but the the blog i mean it hit so many people and when the fans started to view, and it was a question, you know, question of the day sort of thing, and I'd respond to it and I'd click video with it. And, and I had so many uh, haters jump on right off the bat. Sure. Mostly Leaf fans, I will say, <laughs> that wouldn't let go of the 93 missed call Gretzky uh, Gilmore deal. And yeah. I get it. I understand yeah. it. And I'm okay with it. Uh, but some of the, the uh, responses were foul. I mean, you effed us in this, you know, in 93. How can you blah, blah, blah. But yeah. I just, with that column, I stayed the course just like I would on the ice. My adage was treat disrespect with respect. And if someone wanted to talk to me and they wouldn't bring their temperature down, and if they were cursing and swearing, whether in, in verbal or print, uh, I would control it. And I would say, hey, listen, you, you want an answer? You're going to have to be respectful. We're going to have a civil conversation. Yeah. And so in that blog back and forth, I was responding to people. And I stayed the course. And you know what? It showed a human side of the official that fans recognized and after a week or so the haters were being chastised by the people that really recognized uh that they were getting inside information they were understanding uh just like you said earlier uh this is really cool we know we don't know what goes on in the ice right so if someone can bring the fan into that world onto that ice I'll tell you, it's it's amazing uh, how how uh, accepting they can be of the odd mistake. Right. It not to harp on the, the Gretzky call, but like I like I've read your you know since talking about that and like just that moment of uncertainty, right? Like I, you know being oh, able God. to explain that, like I, I, it, it really personalizes it. Craig, you can't imagine. Uh, when something happens in a game and things happen quickly, when you're the guy and you're the, the captain of the ship and you have to make a decision and we didn't have replay that was going to, you know, the, the eye in the sky and all that sort of thing. The 
the anxiety that you feel in the pit of your stomach and you're searching for an answer oh. and you're, you're looking to the two linesmen that had different sight line and perspective. Guys, talk to me, help me. I missed it. What, what did you see? Can you help me? And when the, the answer is not coming to you, you have to eat it. You have to say, oh my God, I hope that it was like Doug Gilmore said to me when I first skated up to him and asked him, killer what happened he said well Wayne took a shot and his follow-through clipped me in the chin with a stick mm. wow I said well if that's the case Doug that's not a penalty uh, normal follow-through on a shot is the you know one of the only times that a high stick penalty infraction uh, is is you know it's legal yeah he said he said okay but something didn't feel right and yeah. you know other players came to me and it was Oh, this doesn't smell right. And Gretzky, who would always be around, uh, you know, if, if there was a question about something, he would be there, you know, trying to present a case and sell it. Wayne yeah. was off to the sidewall. He just sort of stayed away. So <laughs> That's yeah, I, what the alarm bells are going off. Like, Wait, why is it Wayne? Uh, where's Wayne Gretzky? Yeah, exactly. So at that point, you say, hmm, something must have happened that I didn't, you know, this isn't smelling right. And that's when you gather the, the clan and you try and come up with the, the right answer. On August 15th, we released the interview with Bruce Boudreaux, Minnesota Wild head coach. And I, I'm worried because it was the middle of the summer and a lot of people, maybe you weren't as plugged into uh, hockey conversations and podcast listening because you were on vacation as, as you should have been. I think I was literally on vacation on August 15th. This was a pre-recorded talk. But it was so much fun to talk to Bruce. His storytelling is great. He is he may be the best podcast guest. So I want to highlight a couple of clips here that we wanted to to relive. But really, um, so the next two clips are going to be Bruce Boudreaux. Um, one is about the story about being fired by the Capitals, which is an incredible story. And then right after that, his his relationship with Alex Ovechkin. Um, which again, just great insight into the into the, the relationship between a coach and a star player. Um, but I would also encourage you to go back and listen to that whole. If you miss this interview, it's it's on the Athletic app. Go back and listen to the whole thing. It's great from start to finish. So let's let's jump right into that that highlight clip from Bruce Boudreaux. I love that story. If you don't mind sharing of how just how quickly that all came to be, like it was like. Oh, the Anaheim wow. thing? Yeah, like it was, you know, you talk to George and then your phone's ringing 45 minutes later or whatever. Well, it, it was, it's really funny because we had lost to Buffalo on um, Friday night and I had a bad feeling, mm. okay? And, uh, but I didn't get a call on Saturday and I didn't get a call on Sunday. And I remember talking to my assistants and saying, okay, see you tomorrow, made it through the weekend. And then uh, Monday morning came, and it was 6.30 in the morning, and I was on the way to work. And it just so happened I was almost fa- uh, almost passing George McPhee's house at the time. And he had called, and he said, uh, I'll never forget these things. He says, uh, Bruce, could you stop at my house before you go to work? And uh, I said, uh, well, this can't be good. And, he, you know, George didn't laugh. I mean, he's, right. he's pretty straight laced in that respect so i said yeah be right there so i knocked on his door five minutes later and um uh, he was still in his pajamas he said hold on i gotta get dressed <laughs> and so you know george being the classy guy he is went and put a suit and tie on and then came down to the door did he have a scarf gave, dude did he throw a scarf on I no like he didn't have the scarf on okay. and but he gave me the news and uh, when he did it, he gave me a big hug and said he's going to miss me, and he thanked me for everything. So I went back home, and uh, uh, and I said uh, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. I was, you know, fairly sure. upset. So I mean, uh, but after two hours of just sitting staring at the wall, I started getting a little antsy myself, and. Um, uh, and it would have been announced. So I'm getting text messages and calls that I didn't answer, like uh, like it was just blowing up. But yeah. then I, I texted my buddy in Anaheim, uh, Rick Patterson, who was the director of player personnel. And I said, okay, Patter, just got to let go. If you uh, need a coach, give me a call. <laughs> and not thinking anything about it. 
Right. I mean, I'm just phoning him because he's my friend and he's in hockey and I've known him for 40, 30 years. So, um, uh, 15 minutes later, he texts me back and he said, hold on, something may be happening. And I went, (laughs) what? And so the next thing I know is, um, George phones me and George says, uh, Hey Bruce, uh, I answered the phone again and said, George, you change your mind. And uh, again, nothing <laughs> crickets on the other line uh, on the other end. So he says, Bruce, would you like to coach in the NHL again? And I said, well, what do you think George? Of course. And he says, well, would you like to coach tomorrow? And I said, get that out. And he said, he said, no, he said, you may be getting a call from a general manager and, uh, uh, today and, uh, just letting you know. And mm-hmm. so Bob phoned me, we talked briefly on the phone. He asked me what my, uh, what my system was. And I just said, I want to be aggressive. I want to go for goals. I want to, I want to attack and attack. And, uh, he said, okay. And then he hung up and he phoned me 15 minutes later and he said, okay, this is still Monday, by the way. And he says, I want you to fly to, uh, I'm going to offer you the job. And I didn't have an agent, so he just said, I'm going to offer you the job, and uh, but I want you to f- keep it quiet and fly to um, Anaheim on Tuesday and uh, we'll make the announcement Wednesday. And I said, okay, so uh, Tuesday came, I was supposed to address, Tuesday morning before the the flight, uh, I was supposed to address the media in Washington, yeah. and so they came to my house, and and I remember them saying, uh, "Why are you wearing a suit and tie?" And uh, <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm going to my mom's. I don't know. I was just making <laughs> stuff up on on that thing." And um, yeah. so uh, I flew there, watched the game at uh, the as as Anaheim beat Montreal four to one or four to nothing. Um, that night, watched the game on TV at Rick Patterson's house, and um, with uh, with Bob and the scouts, and uh, that were there. And then the next day, we had the press conference, and I was officially uh, with Anaheim. But it happened so quickly that it was uh, it was scary. How well did you know Alex Ovechkin before taking? That I didn't. Job? I didn't okay. know him very well at all. On, until I got there. Matter of fact, my very first walk around the dressing room when I'm addressing the players, uh, I walked around and I and before eyeing Alex, I looked up at his name tag and I said, "Holy crap, I'm coaching Alex Ovechkin." <laughs> you know, like it 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 hadn't sunk into me yet. And uh, but I I, st- I got a really along really well with him. I mean, we had, um, from his parents to me, our, I, I thought we had a great relationship. I mean, we had one bad um, one bad time, one bad moment, and that was when I sat him out one night. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't sat him out. I sat him out a shift. I didn't put him on for the six versus five. And um, we we ended up tying the game, and it was against Anaheim, and we ended up winning in overtime. And uh, the only question, and it looked like he'd mouthed something about, you know, he was ticked off at me. And But the one thing I found out, you have to do what you have to do and uh, in, in coaching. And, and a lot of times you, don't, you do things that you really don't like to do, but you have to do them. And Alex was minus four or something at that game. He was just having a really bad game. And so I, I just thought he didn't deserve to be on uh, in the last last minute and we ended up scoring and then I put him on in overtime and he got an assist on the winning goal so um, that was the only negative I ever had with Alex I mean he would come in my room every day we would talk we would just, uh, watch video together I mean I gave him a crap when he needed it and uh, yeah. and praised him you know nine out of ten times uh, I mean that was probably the ratio and uh, uh, the best part about that was when I coached the All-Star game in L.A. Uh, three or four years ago, um, he, he ran over to me, gave me a hug, and his parents ran over and gave me the hug and, yeah. and said they missed me and everything. And so you just knew that there was a good relationship or good uh, 
there that it didn't end like I mean as people would thought that oh OV got me fired or whatever I don't believe any of that stuff this was just the the way it worked out and um and to this day I mean it's actually funny every time we play him I get so mad because he'll look at me and warm up and he'll come over and he'll say I'm scoring three tonight or I'm scoring two and he's done it and then he looks at me and I have to look away because he's winking and he's smiling and the last thing I want to see when you're the opposition is is him smiling at you and you smiling back right right if you're getting scored on right yeah oh that's that's great so i think that's a that's that's a great like teaching moment was that when when you had to sit on was that year one with wash or was that like no that was yeah actually uh uh, the thing it was about uh, year four and a half um it was like two weeks before i got let go oh uh, that's with the optics of oh alex Alex. And that's what the optics yeah. were from that. And on the other hand, it was it was Anaheim that we were playing. And I think one of the one of the things Bob Murray, one of the reasons he hired me, was he thought, hey, this guy makes the the, the tough decision at the right time. Right. He's not letting the inmates run the asylum type thing. Yeah. And I thought that was that was very interesting that. I got fired from a place I never wanted to leave to go to a place because we beat that team. On August 1st, Connor Carrick was our guest on the Full 60. And uh, like to be completely transparent, current NHL players aren't always a great podcast guest. I mean, they're... They're so used to talking to the media, and a lot of times it's you're getting kind of the canned answers. And in this format where you really want insight and you really want storytelling um you know guys that are playing right now are busy and you know they maybe it's not exactly what they're dying to be doing and but in this case Carter Carrick I wanted to have him on here and I don't you know him Carter and I don't know each other particularly well but I I just you can tell in interviewing him and following him on social media he's an intelligent guy who likes to engage and have the kind of conversations we like to have and so we lined him up this summer when he had the time in his schedule and the the clip that we're going to highlight here um, from Connor, it gets at some of the anxieties you deal with as an NHL player. He's a big mental health advocate, um, and some of the things you don't think about when you're dealing with these these high end athletes. And this is a five minute clip. And again, I would go and encourage you if you missed this interview in the summer to go listen to the full thing. But this is Connor Carrick of the New Jersey Devils. How much did did you or do you struggle with anxiety? Was is that is that the kind of the one area that was the focus for you, or is? Well, I, I the way I describe it is I, I have a fire every day, and you know I've seen it in other people where they're they're not as um, fired up. So I'm kind of grateful for that hunger to try and do well and and succeed as as a person and as a player. Yeah. Um. You know, but at the same time. It, the the cliches are very well known. You can see it. This guy's playing anxious hockey. He's gripping the stick too tight. He's forcing things. He's overshooting. Yeah. Uh, I think every player goes through those spells, and for certain players that can be uh, three years of time, and for certain players that can last three games. Right. So somewhere in there, you know. Um, you show your sort of mental resiliency. And I just don't think with the pace of the NHL game, uh, the pace of the schedule, it does not serve a player well in this league um, to not be resilient and to really overstress mistakes. Because, I mean, I've watched all the way to, you know, game seven of the Stanley Cup finals. There were some really strong players, you know, turning pucks over. Making a defensive error. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a game where, you know, both sides of the puck get paid to, to be professionals. And everyone's going to get the best of someone someday. And the goal is to tip the scale in your favor as best you can. Um, you know, so, so for me, I, I definitely have dealt with anxiety in my career. I've dealt with, um, you know, maybe relying on outside validation a little much. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of being, uh, you know, a little in my own head, you know, after, after, you know, some, some breaks between shifts, we'll call it that. Right. Um, and I think as much as you can, you know, the, the, 
sexy term of flow state is thrown around a lot today. Um, you know, in a lot of, you know, self-help books or, or performance books and that. And, uh, I think if you can, you can try to maintain that, that sort of state, it's going to best service your, your career and, and myself as a, as a, as a person, you know, you, you mentioned journaling. What's, what are strategies that you could pass along that, that have really helped you? Um, I would say number one is, is busy is like everybody's busy. You can be infinitely busy today. You can, there's always an email on your phone you can respond to. There's always a text message. So I think the biggest thing that journaling has done for me is it's a, it's a scheduled space in my day that is for that. It's for creating space. What's going on? What's my schedule look like today? What do I want to eat today? All the way down to those are sort of the simple things that you get out of the way so that you can, you know, what am I really grateful for? Right. Like, I, this is, why am I stressed out? When I was 16, I would have begged for, for an NHL contract of any sort. Right. You know, now today you're, you're arguing over, oh, it's one year, it's two years, it's three years, it's, it's this much, it's that much. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a job that can remind you of the scarcity of the amount of jobs very easily, yes. you know, and coaches will bring it up. It's well talked about. It's a turbulent uh, business that you can be uprooted and traded or bought out all the time. Um, but I think, you know, it, it really helps me practice feeling grateful for what's going on in my life while also acknowledging, you know, real strategy. I, I, I don't believe in like ignoring your problems um, like it, it, just trying to like wish them away with, yeah, but you know, everyone in my family is healthy. Well, it doesn't make me feel, it doesn't change the turnover last night. It still upsets me. <laughs> like, yeah, right. of course I'm grateful. No one in my family has, has cancer today, but you know, my, my career, <laughs> my career could be in trouble if I'd make that play again tonight. Right. Right. Um, you know, so I think it, it's a, it's a balance of being, you know, realistic and not trying to be too woo woo, you know, head in the clouds. I, I still want to be, um, you know, a doer, uh, of, of things. I don't just want to sit home and think all day. Yeah. Right. Um, but at the same time, it helps me, you know, remain closer to, to people that, that mean a lot to me and, and really remember what it is, um, how good things can be for me. Right before the 2019 NHL draft, we had TSN's Craig Button on and, not necessarily to talk about the prospects, and I'm sure we got into it a little bit, but Craig, I, I just wanted to get him. He's such a great talent evaluator, great guy, um, has a ton of experience in front office and in media, and I thought he would be fascinating, and it was a great time of year to jump into some of that, you know, how he evaluates prospects, uh, some of the, the mistakes he's made, some of the successes he's made in, in the past in doing that. And, and we, he got into this great story about Jordan Leopold, and I'm not going to spoil it because that's what... That's what we want the clip to highlight. But he said this was one of the proudest moments of his career as an executive. So let's jump right into that with Craig Button. So I, I would be curious, along you know, along those lines in terms of scouting and, and identifying a player, do you have an example of a player that you that you drafted who was like very personal to you, that you saw a bunch of times that you fought for that you know you know what I mean? Like that you had a connection to? Is do you have a story there? Well, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many, honestly, Craig, there are so many because, you know, you you get, you like in Dallas and Calgary, we went Minnesota, Dallas, Calgary, we went and and we narrowed down our group of players. We narrowed down who who we thought we would get into the first round, who we would get in the second round, who we would get in the third round. And we would go and spend time with, with 25, 30 players. That, that we realistically thought we had a chance. At. And then we would go and spend a full day with them and their families. Yeah. And we, we didn't get to draft every single one of them. We, we didn't, we didn't get to, but, but we, we understood and we, we, we spent the time with them. So, so you make this personal connection Yeah. and, and you're going to, and, and, and that carries on over time. I mean, there's players that we never drafted, but to this day, they come and say, Oh, I remember that day you came to our house and spent time. I mean, and, and so it's, it, it's nice to hear that, but yeah. my personal favorite story. Okay. Is Jordan Leopold. Okay. okay. 
Jordan Leopold was somebody that we were incredibly interested in drafting in Dallas. So we went through the draft process. We went and spent a full day with him and his family and, you know, asked him a whole lot of different things anyway, and talked to him about what our plan was for him. He got drafted by the Anaheim Ducks. We didn't get him. I went to Calgary as the GM and I made a trade for Jordan Leopold. So, uh, you know, he's at the university of Minnesota now, and, you know, we, we took up the relationship and in 2001, uh, the, the university of Minnesota had lost in the regional, uh, championship of the NCAAs. Mm-hmm. And I went, uh, and so I got a call from Neil Sheehy. He said, Jordan wants to leave school. What kind of contract offer are you going to make him? I said, I'm not making any contract offer to him. If he wants to leave school, he can leave school. And then Neil and I went back and forth. I said, I'm coming to Minnesota. I said, yeah. I'm coming to Minnesota. You, uh, uh, Jordan, his dad, and bring Don Lucia, right? And make yeah. sure that we're, we're going to have lunch. So this is at the end, near the end of the season. I went down, and uh, uh, Jordan's girlfriend, who's now his wife, Jamie, was also there. We sat down. We're having lunch. We're, you know, we were through the pleasantries of 15, 20 minutes, catching up the disappointment. So then uh, I got into it and I said to, uh, I said, Jordan, you know, Neil and I talked a little bit. You talked about the NHL. I said, I said, I have a question for you. No, before we get going here, I said, do you remember the, the, the day we spent? I said, we spent a lot of time. Do you remember the time? He goes, oh yeah, I remember it. His dad was there. She, he remembers it. I said, do you remember you said there was three things that you wanted to achieve at that time. And he looks at me and he looks at me and he says, uh, uh, I said, here, I'll remind you. <laughs> you said you wanted to be captain of the Gophers. You wanted to be national. You wanted to win a national championship with the Gophers and you wanted to finish your degree. He looked at me and he said, geez, you have a good memory. I said, those <laughs> are really important to you. I yeah. said, those are things I don't forget. I said, and those were things that, that you expressed that were important to you. And I said, we sit here today. And I said, there's not a check mark beside any one of those three things. So one of two things has happened. Number one, you're getting ahead of yourself or number two, those three things never mean anything to you. Mm-hmm. Never meant anything to you. And he looked at me. He said, you're right. He says, I'm going back to the university of Minnesota. Wow. We just went and had lunch. Now, do you know what Jordan did the next year? He was captain of the Gophers. He won the Holby Baker Award, and they won a national championship. He was a couple of credit hours short, and we helped him finish his degree when he turned pro. That's amazing. That, that to me, okay, so, so it, it speaks to what we talked about earlier. Like, those were important to Jordan. Could, could have I got a splash here by signing Jordan Leopold out of the University of Minnesota that time? Yeah, I could have. But knowing the young man, and knowing what I felt was important to him, right. And spending the time, you, you know, with him on a personal level and, the, and, and all the different areas that I thought were really important for him to try to go and achieve with no guarantees. That to me is, is, is I've won a Stanley cup. I've had lots of different successes. I'm as proud of that as I am of anything that I've done. A lot of NHL teams won't make their analytics staff available to the media for conversations, and it's certainly understandable. But I was excited when the Carolina Hurricanes allowed us to have a conversation with Eric Talski, who is, I would say he's a good friend at this point. We've been, I mean, not a good friend. We're not like hanging out, but he's somebody I've known a long time. He's, I think we met at Sloan probably a decade ago now at this point. And before he disappeared behind the the curtain of working for an NHL team was a guy you could you could tap into it was especially when analytics wasn't at the forefront like it is now he was was and is brilliant and uh, it was always really great about sharing what he knows and that's why that's what made him such a great guest on this podcast um, again go back and listen to it if you're into analytics but this clip here uh, where we kind of chat about luck and and how that factors into everything in the world of analytics, I thought was a fun listen. So let's listen to that right now. I think there's sometimes we just, we completely write things off the shooting percentage. You know what I mean? Without saying, hey, why, besides blind luck in, in the puck going in this year, why is his shooting percentage higher? Or, or why does that guy's, why is that guy, like Steven Stamkos, I think is consistently higher. Like that, I think that to me is, is under, 
I don't know, valued or analyzed, at least publicly? Yeah, so something that I've talked about a few times is when people hear the word luck, they cringe. Like, there's a little bit of luck in hockey, but not a lot. Um, the luck that people are talking about a lot of time when they talk about random fluctuations, it's, you know, okay, so if I'm a mediocre shooter and not very many of my shots go in, some of them do, and if tonight one or two of them do, like, I kind of got lucky, but I also kind of made good shots, and it's not really luck that I made good shots. It's just luck that I happened to do it tonight and not tomorrow or the next day. <laughs> right. Um, and so, like, there is a real talent that some people, you know, shoot better in the long run, but for anybody, some days they're going to hit that perfect shot, and it's not luck that he hit a perfect shot. He really, he nailed it, right? Um, yeah. It just it doesn't mean he's going to do it again tomorrow. So, uh, so, like, so when, when you say people cringe, do you think analysts cringe or? No, I, I think, I think when analysts use the term luck to describe everything that fluctuates unpredictably, people hear luck and they think, you know, they think you're talking about a coin toss, something the player had no control over at all. Right. You know, I, like, you can take something like hockey is complicated. You've got a lot of moving parts, like maybe the goalie made a save, maybe there's got whatever. But even if you take something that's pretty simple, like a basketball player shooting free throws, if he's an 80% free throw shooter, that doesn't mean every set of 10 is going to have eight go in. There's going to be right. some where he makes six and some where he makes 10. The times he makes 10, he had 10 good shots. It's not luck. Like he didn't just randomly have the ball find his way <laughs> the hoop. Right. Uh, but you still don't bet on him making 10 every time just because he did the last time. Right. Where I would say it's, it's still prevalent and I'd be curious to see if you disagree is like, to me it's, it's when it comes to winning a playoff series or advancing in the spring, like that's you sit there and you can go, this series literally came down to that shot hitting the post. That to me is, I think luck is, is less about a player's performance and more about maybe a team advancing. It, it, and when the stakes are the highest, so it's really hard to, you know, so it becomes a major thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, but that shot hit the post, and that's nothing. Like, he could have shot it a little bit better. It could have been that's true. to the left and gone in. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, pure randomness is pretty slim. It's mostly, it was just such a close call that I don't think we can predict what would happen next time. And so that's why I understand why people cringe about hearing luck because it's, you know, it is under his control. It just stuff happens. You know, sometimes you make your best shot and sometimes you don't. We like to use the off season or at least teams off seasons um, to get guests who probably don't have the time during the regular season to sit down for an hour. And in May, after the Florida Panthers hired Joel Quenville, we finally were able to pin him down for a long conversation that, that, you know, I was looking forward to having. This was something that we worked on. Tyler and the Panthers went back and forth to, to pin this down. And Joel, of course, didn't disappoint. And I, I find people tend to our best when we look back and reflect, like, you know, people that are talking about the moment now aren't going to always tell the best stories. But once Joel got talking about some of his highlights from those great Blackhawks runs, it was it was a really fun conversation. So that's the part we wanted to highlight from the interview with Joel Quenville from May. And you, know, you look back on every one of the Cups wins. Yeah. Man, there were some unbelievable challenges there where we had, you know, you think about uh, the one year with Hosa and, and, and in the Nashville yeah. series early on, you talk about, uh, you know, how we got through that, that round. And then, you know, and then the next year, what was the, what was the biggest test, but every round had, had their real challenges um, to get through. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, it was a, you know, there was, yeah, every, every game was almost like somebody might've stood out. But at the end of the day, it was we needed everybody, and everybody pushed one another in the right fashion, and uh, it was just fun to be around for sure. And it's it is crazy to think of how close you guys were to winning four in that stretch. Well, you know, you're you're uh, <laughs> two goal lead in the conference finals at home. Um, that would be the one that would say you got away. 
Yeah. But then I mean, again, it's... you look at, uh, but then I wait, that's, but, but you still had to win the next round, but I yeah. look at the ones we won. All right. I feel like, man, we're, we're very fortunate the way it is. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I right. know how close it was or what it is and I'm sitting there. Okay. But what about the, uh, the ones that we did win, how uh, we we're very fortunate. So right. That, you can sit there and look at, at the bounces, right. And say, okay, oh, that goes yeah, another way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. We are, we had every one of the ones we won. There is a major, major break. Mm. That's how close it is. You know, and you, you need a lot of things go your way. And, uh, but it was, uh, you know, each one was, they were uh, amazing experiences and, and good memories along the way. With, as someone that's lived through all, all kinds of different runs in the playoffs, what's, and we sit there and debate it every year. Like it'll be the Penguins will win. It'll be like, Oh, you got to have speed. Then, you know, the Kings will win and it's got to be heavy and you know, whatever, whatever happens this year, we're going to come to some conclusion. What's the one ingredient you feel like has to be there? Uh, I think you need a, com- a competitive group. I think you need to be four lines deep. You need depth organizationally. You need goaltending. You need uh, you need to be relatively injury free. Yeah, that's um, a big one. You're gonna you're gonna have some you're gonna have some things go wrong injury wise. But I mean, if you can get through it uh, in the, in a limited way, you can. That definitely is a factor. Um, at the end of the day, you need your top guys uh, to be great. Um, so you need everything going and, you know, and matchups you need, uh, whether the, you know, you, who, who you're playing and when you're playing them is, is a factor as well. So you need almost everything's got to, you know, at the end of the day, you got to win the big games when the games are on the line. Right. It's like, and then there's luck, yeah. right? Then there's the bounce the, in the one moment. Yeah. Yeah. But I find that that's when, uh, you know, that's what you take care of because you're doing the right things and you're, you're confident and, uh, you know, it's the same every four lines are doing it and you know that's that's why you're comfortable and you're going to find a way to get it done hey let me take a second to talk about doordash especially this time of year because this is when i spend a, a good 90 percent of my days in like sweatpants in a t-shirt in a giant hoodie that i won at a dave and busters about 20 years ago and i don't want to leave the house But I still want to eat good food from local restaurants with my family. And so this is where DoorDash comes in the most handy. It connects you with your favorite restaurants in your city. And ordering is so easy. You open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, order from your local go-to restaurant or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. And right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code FULL60. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter the promo code FULL60. No the in front of it. I don't want anyone to get confused there. Just the FULL60 to get $5 off your first order from DoorDash. We were lucky enough to have, I would say, several Hall of Famers on the podcast this year, which is which is pretty great. And one of my favorites was Martin Brodeur, who obviously one of the best goalies of all time and one of the best conversationalists. He's always been, in terms of high-end athletes, pretty accessible, um, fun to talk to, and this, this was a great chat. And one of my favorite parts was talking about Olympic play and Maybe not the part he wanted to talk about the most when in 2010 when hockey or when Team Canada made the switch from him to Roberto Luongo, but an interesting story nonetheless. And Martin was great, and so let's jump into that a little conversation about the Olympics, the switch with Martin Broder. As a player, what what was your favorite Olympic moment? Uh you know what? Uh, for sure, winning winning in 2002. You know. Uh, Knowing that Canada hasn't won a gold medal in 50 years, yeah, and it was mind-boggling to us <laughs> because we thought we were like the best, the best country in hockey. But we haven't right. won in 50 years, uh, so obviously when we did win that uh, that gold medal was was pretty surreal moment uh, in my career. Uh, it's something yeah. that you know I'm so used to do it, do everything with the Devils and with the people I know around me real well, and now you kind of get out of your bubble a little bit and, and you have to adjust yourself to a different team, a different system. 
Um, and you know, every game is game seven, you know, and yeah. two week tournament and, um, so it was fun. I, that's, that's probably the best one, but you know, every Olympic, regardless if it was the first one in Nagano, I didn't, I was on the bench. I didn't play. Yeah. So what an experience to be part of, of the first time the pro hockey players were able to play in the Olympics, um, you know, in Vancouver, back home in our country, um, you know, to win a gold medal there was, was tremendous also. So they all had something, you know, uh, Torino was fun. It was in Italy. Like there's special moments, uh, for, for athletes to be part of. And I know it's a big discussion with the NHL, uh, what's going on now, not, not going to the last one. And, you know, yeah. as an athlete, I know uh, there's nothing better than that than, than be able to play for your country. And that's something that, uh, I'll always going to remember. How was, it, it was interesting. Like I think of O2 and kind of how it played out in 10, but, like, you know, it's Curtis Joseph to start in 02, then you get the job. Like, how was that dynamic and kind of navigating teammates, but then trying to win a gold? Yeah, well, you know what? It's it's funny how it works. But with Hockey Canada, when you're the guy, you're the guy. When you lose, you're out. <laughs> so it's one of those things. You know, I came in uh, and Cujo, you know, had the job there and, and he didn't play really well in the first game or not really well. I just, it was a tough game against Sweden. And uh, they kind of give me the, uh, the say, Marty, I'll, you know, it's your tournament. So I was like, so I took a chance, and they took it. They took a chance on me. And next thing you know, I was able to play uh, probably as their starting goalie for about eight more years. You know, with, yeah. <laughs> with the, the World Cups and all that stuff that that we had to go through. Um, that's one of the things. It's just you never know. It's tough. Like you, all the goalies are, are are really good. They all want, you all want that job. And I, I sat there in Vancouver and I knew I couldn't lose a game because right. Longo was right behind me, yeah. you know, and then same thing with Longo with, with Kerry Price, you know, whenever <laughs> he's the guy for Canada now, you know, it's just, just the, the way it goes. Yeah. It's like, there's zero room for error, right? Like no margin. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what you want. You know, you want your best players to play for your country and, when you're called upon, you, you got to perform. If not, there's somebody there uh, waiting for you. So I was always curious, and I, hopefully there's enough time since it's happened. Like, what when Mike Babcock tells you he's going with Luongo? Like, you're you're a guy that's done a ton for the country. Did you, did you feel like like what was your reaction? I knew it. Like I told you, like yeah. I knew I lost that game against the U.S. I was losing my my job. Okay. You know, and yeah. and, and I think it's important. Um, to be a, a really good team player at that time. You know, it, it's hard. People were looking at me to see how I was going to react. And you have to be a good pro. And I supported uh, Lou as, as much as I could. Yeah. Uh, and then to help all the players that were there. Uh, a lot of guys were, were, were newer to the Olympic Games. Uh, other guys were there before. Um, but, again, it's one thing. Like, being part of Hockey Canada is, is, is uh, you know, it's a luxury. It's something that... that you're you should it's not something that you should, you should think you're entitled about you know it's sure it's something that that's special and so for me um and that's how i became i became close with, with the organization the management group of hockey canada and you know, i offered my services when i came on the front office i told my goal listen you guys have done so much for me if you ever need me to do anything for you guys you know don't hesitate to call and and mm. you know, call and you know that's just what we do in canada Pat Brisson of CAA, as you probably know, is one of the power agents in the game, one of the most influential people, regardless of occupation, in hockey. And Pat and I sat down. Every year, the NHL brings a ton of stars to either Chicago or New York for, I think, what we kind of call just the car wash. You're just you're rolling players through for interviews. Um, you're in and out. And Pat was in Chicago this year. And so after I was done with the uh, group of national writers at The Athletic talking to all the stars that were there. Pat and I sat down. We found a fairly quiet corner of a conference room at the Marriott Magnificent Mile in Chicago and had a fun conversation. And one of the things I wanted to talk to him about is he's got his, – his boys are hockey players, and you know here he is with this stable of high-end clients, Jonathan Taves, Sidney Crosby, Patrick Kane, John Tavares, and – they end up becoming like family and having an impact on his kids. And so we got into that in this clip right here. How much influence do you, I mean, I mean, like a guy like Sidney Crosby or Patrick Kane or that I'm sure are almost like family to you at this point, like how much influence do they have on the, on the boys or, you know, Oh, tremendous influence. I mean, uh, my boys grew up, uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, what, 10 years ago, what Sid is 32 now, 
and 10 years ago he, he, he you know it was 22 as a young man and yeah. Brendan was nine and, uh, and seven and, and and five and used to come to the house and so they they grew up uh, looking up to all these young great players right. and listening to stories listening to my conversations with them um throughout the years and so i'm sure they they, they absorb hopefully they absorb the goods yeah <laughs> you know the do's and the don'ts so to speak and uh, they were pretty privileged to to be in that environment for sure what what did what do they learn from a guy like Sidney Crosby? Seeing him differently than we do, right behind the scenes, and the work ethic, you yeah, know, consistency, yeah. consistency. I mean, it's it, it doesn't apply only for Sid, but the hockey players to be a professional athlete, to be at that level, you be you need to be consistent. You need to be a professional. You need to be you need to do little things right. You need to it adds up, and that's what I I, I, I always tell families and my my kids too, but families at the rink. You know, hockey's a culture. It's school of life. Mm-hmm. It's school of life more than anything. Because you won't play hockey your entire life. Well, you're lucky if you're going to have a career. Right. And if you have a career, it may last five years, six right. years. If And some some of them were playing for 10, 12, or 15 years. They're the lucky ones. They're the special ones. But for the most part, whatever they learn in hockey is going to serve them well after hockey as well. Yeah. You know? Was there a... Is there like a Crosby origin story where you guys like how how did you he ended up at CA or with you guys? Uh? Yeah, I mean, uh, Sid was thirteen, um, going on fourteen that summer. He was playing on a spring team in Toronto. Okay, he's an eighty-seven birth. He was playing in an eighty-five class, so two years above him. I remember going to watch him play in uh, Toronto, and he. His team won four to two. He had a goal and two assists. He was a little peanut compared to the other kids. <laughs> yeah. His jersey was long down to his knees almost, but he kept making plays and he was around the puck all the time. He was so special. <laughs> yeah. Know? He didn't take a brain surgeon to discover him. <laughs> and um, his father, Troy, played against me in junior. Troy was a goalie uh, for the Virgin. Um, and Troy actually sent me a text a few uh, weeks ago and he said, hey, you actually scored on me. Here's the here's the the summary. You know, oh, yeah. Then no his kidding. mother had cut in the paper and oh, all that. He sent great. it to me. So um, so I was glad to see that I scored on Troy. But we, we knew each other. And, and um, I approached Troy and... Uh, and um, and uh, we had other people working in recruiting with us too at that yeah. time, and so, and um, they they um, they believed in, in 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 me and us at the time and uh, the Crosbys, and then we built a relationship from from them. I remember the, from there. I remember the first time we went to Shattuck to visit Shattuck for Sid. He was fifteen. Yeah. And. He had hockey cards with him. He was collecting cards with players. He was still a, a kid, right. you know, and it's amazing. But the focus he had and determination was exceptional. Heading into this interview, I was fairly confident that Rocky Thompson, the Chicago Wolves AHL head coach, was one of the up-and-coming, probably going to land a head coaching job in the next year or so. Um, when I was done with this conversation, I was absolutely convinced of it. Rocky is intelligent he's fascinating he's progressive just uh, an all-around uh, he, he's got an all, just a fantastic future as an nhl head coach and the conversation we talked gosh i want to say the conversation with rocky was i want to say in the spring like late mid to late april and the clip that we wanted to highlight from him was just was talking about his offensive philosophies. And if you remember him as a player, was known more for his fighting than his players, or fighting than his playing. And we talked about that transition from a guy known for fighting to somebody who is uh, has a appreciation for offense, a progressive coach, and kind of basically remaking his image as a, as a future NHL head coach. So that's this clip from Rocky Thompson. You talk about your you, you you kind of the geek out over the tactics and the X's and O's. What's kind of your offensive philosophy and and, and how you want to run a team? Well, first you need skill. So that was in that in that presentation that I had there. You need a certain level of skill to be able to perform. There are tactics, I believe, depending on depending on coverages that you face, that you can take advantage of those coverages. So those are what what I would call the adjustments that you make in real time that you can do against other teams. Uh, but at the end, and then the end of the day, I said, and I think this was a clincher because it is so, 
simple in its simplicity. As I said, from the beginning of any video you watch back in hockey, let's say when the rules are pretty much in the modern day, let's say in the last since the 20s and the 30s, where we're basically under the same rules right now. I said, you can trace offense and it looks the same. The sticks might be different. The skating ability, the speed of the game, the shots, those might be a little bit different. I said, but there's a commonality between them. And it was always about puck support. Mm-hmm. And so when you, you add a skill, you add um, certain tactics depending on coverages, but the puck support was everything. It, it really was the glue that holds everything else together. You can't do anything without the other. If you take one of those things out of the equation, uh, maybe maybe the adjustment side, if you have great puck support, you can still generate offense. Even if you make no adjustments, you always will need some level of skill to a certain level in order to, to generate the offense. Right. But even with less skill, with puck support, you will generate offense. And if you can blend all three and you're good at it, now you, you're going, your team is going to be an offensive team. Yeah. And so with these thoughts, and these are always thoughts that I had in different things, and like I say, I worked with people, the teams that I've been on have been very, very offensive. And it was these principles that, that, we, would, um, <clears throat> that we would implement with our team, and uh, we would see high-volume scoring. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it, I mean, you talk about working with Todd Nelson, like that's another guy who loves, has that mentality, right? Yep. Same, same thing. Absolutely. And I would be curious because I mean, you're, you know, your, your, your playing background is as a fighter and I, and I, this may not run for a couple of weeks, so I don't want to date it, but you know, we saw the, the fight last night in the playoffs with Ovechkin and you know, a lot of people didn't like that with um, Svechnikov. Like we're, you know, with that as your background and you know, the kind of the team aspect part of it, where do you see all that fitting in as a coach now? And kind of today's modern game. I don't think about it to tell you the truth. Cause yeah. like as a player for me, it was always a personal decision. Yeah. Did I play for a coach here and there that would encourage me to fight? Yeah. But it very rarely ever happened because it's like, Hey man, I already know what I got to do. You right. don't have to tell me, just give me a shift and it's going to get done. I'm good at what I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that would always bug me if somebody ever did it. Cause I, I knew what I needed to do and it's <laughs> right, my right, choice. Right. It's not his choice. And so I don't impose that on anybody because I went through it. I had, I probably played six, 700 professional games and another 300 in junior. I probably had 300 fights. Mm-hmm. I know what that's like to go through every single day to prepare for that encounter. And, um, an individual needs to know that it's their choice and it's up to them. I do. I see it dying a death a hundred percent. Like yeah. I, you just, it's, there's no denying it with the way the rules are and stuff. And do I have an opinion on it? I don't. Mm-hmm. I just, this is all I care about. I care about coaching my team to have the most success possible within the rules that are in front of me. The rules change. We'll change with those rules. If it's more physical, then we go more physical. If it's less physical and it's changed, whoever stays ahead of the curve, I always think has the most success. So that's what I'm constantly looking at is where's the game going? What direction it is? And how can I stay in front of that in order to be ahead of my peers? That's the challenge. And I, and I find that fascinating. <laughs> I was just having this conversation with somebody yesterday because I was, in, I was in Pittsburgh and the, the Penguins win a couple years ago and everybody says, Oh, you got to have speed and it's speed. And that's, and, and the, you know, the Kings heavy hockey is extinct. And then now all of a sudden it's like, Oh man, you know, the lightning are down. like, there's this constant pendulum. It seems like in hockey between speed and skill or, or whatever the kind of the trend is. So as like, how, how do you make sure you're not chasing that? And, and you're instead, you know, you're, you're Mike Sullivan playing that fast game and, and being out front. For me, really, it's about, it's about the philosophy and, and, and obviously the players, because you're touching on two things for me, a philosophy of how you want to play, yeah. but then the players you have and then playing within, within your means and how you, how you play based upon your players too, because that can change. If you're, if you're a slower team, you can play fast without a doubt, but there's also certain advantages that you can take uh, advantage of. And you have to feed that. It could be forechecking, grinding things out in the offensive zone. There's a number of different things. So you got to look at your players, and that's your general manager gives you the players. And then now 
because here's the thing. I, I have my top five leading goal scorers are no longer with us anymore, <laughs> injured maybe for the year or traded. So we've had to evolve as, as our personnel has changed. And sometimes that happens in the NHL because of injury. And that's why it's so important to be able to coach your players. You have a vision, but you've got to be able to pivot during the season if that's what's required for your team to continue to, to pro- progress or to progress. Um, so at the end of the day that you can, you, you can give your team the best opportunity it can have to have success. It's not putting a square peg in a round hole all the time, um, but finding ways of making things work uh, with what you have. The last clip is with Andrew Thomas, who was coming off his tenure with the Minnesota Wild as part of their analytics staff and transitioning to his new job. And we were talked we talked about a lot of things. It was it was a fun interview, and Andrew is is great to chat with. But the clip that I wanted to highlight here is with player tracking because that we are now you know as we transition to the second half of the regular season and get closer to the playoffs. This you're going to start seeing it more and more. You're going to see it at the NHL All Star Game. Um, the NHL's plan is to have it in place um, for the playoffs. Player tracking, we're just knocking on the door. And Andrew is is somebody who is smart enough and plugged in enough to really understand what that means. And that's the clip I wanted to highlight where he talked about the future of player tracking, um, where we may see its place in hockey broadcasts. And so let's for the last clip highlight that part of the conversation with Andrew Thomas. The hope is that this will be immediately accessible for broadcast. There are a lot of different tools that we can use. Like, do you remember um, when the uh, All-Star game came out right, um, right. this past year? They had a bunch of different markers for players indicating player speed. And there's a lot of basic things that you can get from the tech that are that are neat and, in, and are interesting. Like distance traveled is a thing that I know is popular with uh, soccer as well. And you can do that almost immediately with this kind of tech. So that's the start of it. But really, a lot of the hope is that it can augment broadcasts in ways we haven't even thought of yet. So you can get right. now you've got player location and you've got that synced to the camera. Uh, what sort of interesting things can you show? Um, I mean, there's lots that you could potentially talk about uh, almost immediately, like you could highlight um, even just when passes are made or completed or uh, where shots were taken from on the ice. There's just a lot you can just annotate with it, let alone right. all the exciting stuff that can follow. So... One of the advantages of having a company um, like SMT that's done a lot of the broadcast stuff in the past is um, we're you know we've got ideas <laughs> like there's things right. that we can share <laughs> right uh, but I know that, uh, that definitely broadcasters are excited to have this kind of technology and as long as it's uh, it's set up in a way that they can use fairly easily um, then it's almost immediately available for any kind of broadcast augmentation which is just you know, as the we're all we're all nerds here. We all get the feeling that we like to right. see uh, data superimposed, and I think the real trick isn't is, to be completely honest. Is how do you suppress it? Like, there's so much stuff you could put on the screen at once. How do you focus it down to just the important parts? And I think replay right. is definitely one of the places where that's almost immediately available. Like, you can say, okay, I want to look at this player on this entry. Um, that stuff is almost immediately accessible. But uh, yeah. just keeping it, filtering it down to not completely overdosing on it is going to be, I think, the trick for a lot of broadcasters. Right, right. And I think of like that that all-star shot when they had the tracking and it was like all the players were out there for warm-ups and that ended up being like the screen grab everyone used because it was like six million names on the screen. All the players like, all at once. Yeah, all the players all at once. It was like, ah, look what's coming. And people were like, oh, it's going to be chaos. I'm like, well, yeah, if, if, we're, <laughs> <laughs> if we're covering warm-ups. So do you... I mean, you mentioned you have some ideas. Is there a, I just wonder if there's a hockey equivalent to the first downline, you know, and that's I don't know what question. that would be. Like yeah. something that's almost immediately available to say, right. yeah, like what's the most important piece of information you should be looking at right now um, that's going to drive that. And I don't know exactly what the answer is going to be for that, but I get the feeling where if you have something that's a little more stationary, like a power play, there are going to be something on there that's going to tell you something of interest i have no idea what that's going to be but something yeah. that's a little more where the pace is a little more slowed down the reason the first down line is so great is because it's leading up to a play it's telling you this is what they're about to do this right. is what they have to aim for i don't know what the equivalent answer for that is in hockey yet but i get the feeling uh a lot of people are going to start looking for it right right about now 
I wonder if there's a way to like if there's a way to in the moment highlight shot quality, right? Where it would mm-hmm. be like this is a shot from a a place that we know percentage wise has a higher chance of going in. And so it's uh, it would I guess it would be hard. You just don't want to be distracting, but like I'm you know, like a red light goes you know something that <laughs> okay, this guy's shot like this has a that was a really good save. You know what I mean? Right. And maybe we know it intuitively, but if we use the data to drive the visual, that would be fascinating For sure. to me. I, I mean, that's one of those applications that I know I've thought of is just, we already get the idea that location is going to be a danger-based thing. And now you, it's a possibility where in real time you can say, well, a cross-ice pass was made exposing um, exposing the goaltender because they have to cross, they'd have to go post to post to make this save. That's right. something the data could definitely do from that once the model has been built for it. Um the only danger, I think, is what if the, te- the technology is finding something where it's it's a measure of inches, where it's a little bit different, and maybe you ha- you're actually indicating something. It's a much more dangerous shot, but really the goalie was already there, and uh, it wasn't so dramatic based on that. But that's more a, criti- a critique of the fact that existing expected goal models don't take any of this stuff into account. And I think the more we get comfortable with the tech, the better we'll be. we will be to highlight those kinds of plays. And that's it, the last clip of our Best of 2019. So many great moments in this podcast this year. So many great guests. I want to thank everybody who appeared on the podcast in in 2019 and and even before that. Like anybody who helped get this thing off the ground and launch this. So many so many incredible guests, incredible stories, fun interviews. And I hope you enjoyed listening to a few of, of our favorite moments from 2019. And really, again, I can't thank you guys enough for listening, for downloading, for subscribing to The Athletics, subscribing to this podcast, wherever it is you listen to podcasts, and especially to the 500 plus of you who have given it reviews on Apple Podcasts. That, I, like, I sincerely appreciate that. You, this, you are the reason this podcast exists and that it continues to grow. And as this year wraps up, again, a sincere thank you to everybody. Hope you enjoyed it in 2019. I hope you come back and continue to listen in 2020. We're really excited about what's to come for this podcast and owe it all to you. So thank you so much. Have a happy holidays and a happy new year.